Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Wednesday, February 28th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a humble member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listening over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topic areas, all covered from a biblical worldview. My brothers and sisters in Christ over there doing a wonderful job for the kingdom, so I would encourage you to get on over there and listen. I will guarantee you're going to find something over there you want to listen to, and there's a real good possibility you're going to find more over there to listen to than you actually have time to listen to it in. The Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a podcast that is dedicated to prayer, devotion, scripture reading, and Bible study. All right. Well, we're going to be continuing on with our Wednesday and our new Bible study, our new uh, or our new Bible reading plan. It's a read Bible and read the Bible in a year, five days a week instead of seven. So we'll continue with that. And, and in the evening segment, we're going to con- continue on in our study of John chapter 18. We still did not finish the totality of this first section from verses 12 through 14 in John 18. So we'll wrap that up. And if we can, we'll move on into the next section, which will be verses 15 through 18. So we'll do that in the evening segment. So let's go ahead and open up the morning segment with the fourth day morning prayer called True Christianity. Let's pray. Lord of heaven, thy goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable. In the works of creation, thou art almighty. In the dispensations of providence, all wise. In the gospel of grace, all love. And in thy Son, thou hast provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin, the justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the perseverance of our souls in the path of life. Though exposed to the terrors of thy law, we have a refuge from the storm. Though compelled to cry unclean, we have a fountain for sin. Though creature cells of emptiness, we have a fullness accessible to all and incapable of reduction. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Keep us from intermittent attention to eternal things. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in religion, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light zeal confidence but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence upon Jesus, but by our love to him, our conformity to him, our knowledge of him. Give us a religion that is both real and progressive, that holds on its way, I'm sorry, that holds on its way and grows stronger, that lives and works in the spirit, that profits by every correction and is injured by no carnal indulgence. Amen. All right, and our devote, or our uh, Morning devotion here from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening for February 28th. The text for it is from Psalm 62.5. My expectation is from him. It is the believer's privilege to use this language. If he is looking for aught from the world, it is a poor expectation indeed. But if he looks to God for the supply of his wants, whether in temporal or spiritual blessings, his expectation will not be a vain one. Constantly he may draw from the bank of faith and get his needs supplied out of the riches of God's loving kindness. This I know, I had rather have God for my banker than all the Rothschilds. My Lord never fails to honor his promises, and when we bring them to his throne, he never sends them back unanswered. Therefore I will wait only at his door, for he never opens it with the hand of munificent grace. I'm sorry, for he ever opens it with the hand of munificent grace. Changes that meaning. At this hour, I will try him anew, but we have expectations beyond this life. 
we shall die soon, and then our expectation is from him. Do we not expect that when we lie upon the bed of sickness, he will send angels to carry us to his bosom? We believe that when the pulse is faint and the heart heaves heavily, some angelic messenger shall stand and look with loving eyes upon us and whisper, Sister Spirit, come away. As we approach the heavenly gate, we expect to hear the welcome invitation. Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. We are expecting harps of gold and crowns of glory. We are hoping soon to be amongst the multitude of shining ones before the throne. We are looking forward and longing for the time when we shall be like our glorious Lord, for we shall see him as he is. Then if these be thine expectations, O my soul, live for God. Live with the desire and resolve to glorify him from whom cometh all thy supplies, and of whose grace in thy election, redemption, and calling it is that thou hast any expectation of coming glory. All right, so our reading for today is Numbers 1 and 2, Psalm 64, and Hebrews 11. So Numbers 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting on the first of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' households, according to the number of names, every male, head by head, from twenty years old, and upward, whoever is able to go out to war in Israel, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. With you, moreover, there shall be a man of each tribe, each one ahead of his father's household. These, then, are the names of the men who shall stand with you. Of Reuben, Elizur, the son of Shedir. Of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. Of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar. Of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. Of the sons of Joseph, of Ephraim, Elishama, the son of Amihud. Of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur. Of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni. Of Dan, Ahiazer, the son of Amishadai. Of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okran. Of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Duel. Of Nephtali, Ahira, the son of Enam. These are they who were called upon by the congregation, the leaders of their father's tribes. They were the heads of the divisions of Israel. So Moses and Aaron took these men who had been designated by name, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first of the second month. Then they registered by genealogy in their families by their father's households, according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, head by head. Just as Yahweh had commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now the sons of Reuben, Israel's firstborn, their neat genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the numbers of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were forty-six thousand five hundred. Of the sons of Simeon, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, their numbered men, according to the number of names, head by head, every male from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Of the sons of Gad, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. 
of the sons of Judah, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Of the sons of Issachar, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Of the sons of Zebulun, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Of the sons of Joseph, namely of the sons of Ephraim, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Ephraim were forty thousand five hundred. Of the sons of Manasseh, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Manasseh were thirty-two thousand two hundred. Of the sons of Benjamin, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Benjamin were thirty-five thousand four hundred. Of the sons of Dan, their genealogical registration, by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names, from twenty years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Of the sons of Asher, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war, their numbered men of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Of the sons of Naphtali, their genealogical registration by their families, by their father's households, according to the number of names from 20 years old and upward, whoever was able to go out to war. Their numbered men of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are the ones who were numbered, whom Moses and Aaron numbered, with the leaders of Israel, twelve men, each of whom was of his father's household. So all the numbered men of the sons of Israel, by their father's households, from twenty years old and upward, who have ever was able to go out to war in Israel, even all the numbered men, were 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. Yahweh had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor shall you take their census among the sons of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, and over all its furnishings, and over all that belongs to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings, and they shall attend to it. They shall also camp around the tabernacle. So when the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle encamps, the Levites shall set it up. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. And the sons of Israel shall camp, each man by his own camp, and each man by his own standard, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony, so that there will be no wrath on the congregation of the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all which Yahweh had commanded Moses, so they did. Numbers 2 now Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, The sons of Israel shall camp, each by his own standard, with the banners of their father's household. They shall camp around the tent of meeting at a distance. 
Now those who camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies and the leader of the sons of Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab, and his army, even their numbered men, 74,600. Those who camp next to him shall be of the tribe shall be the tribe of Issachar, and the leader of the sons of Issachar, Nethanel, the son of Zuar, and his army, even his numbered men, 54,400. Then the tribe of Zebulun, and the leader of the sons of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, and his army, even his numbered men, 57,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Judah, 186,400. By their armies they shall, be, they shall set out first. On the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben, by their armies and the leader of the sons of Reuben, Elazur the son of Shedur, and his army, even his numbered men, 46,500. And those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon, and the leader of the sons of Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai, and his army, even their numbered men, 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, and the leader of the sons of Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel, and his army, even their numbered men, 45,650. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Reuben, 151,450 by their armies, and they shall set out second. Then the tent of meeting shall set out with the camp of the Levites in the midst of the camps, just as they camp, so they shall set out, every man in his place by their standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Ephraim, Elishama the son of Amihud, and his army, even their numbered men, 40,500. Next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, and the leader of the sons of Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedazur, and his army, even their numbered men, 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, and the leader of the sons of Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideoni, and his army, even the numbered men, 35,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Ephraim, 108,100 by their armies, and they shall set out third. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai, and his army, even their numbered men, 62,700. Those who camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, and the leader of the sons of Asher, Pagiel, the son of Okram, and his army, even their outnumbered men, 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, and the leader of the sons of Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan, and his army, even their numbered men, 53,400. The total of the numbered men of the camp of Dan was 157,600. They shall set out last by their standards. These are the numbered men of the sons of Israel by their fathers' households. The total of the numbered men of the camps by their armies, 603,550. The Levites, however, were not numbered among the sons of Israel, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Thus the sons of Israel did according to all that Yahweh commanded Moses. So they camped by their standards, and so they set out every one by his family according to his father's household. Psalm 64 For the choir director, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, and my complaint. Guard my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of the workers of iniquity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. They aimed bitter speech as their arrow, to shoot from places of hiding at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They searched out unrighteousness, saying, we have completed a diligent search. 
for the inward thought of a man and his heart are deep. But God will shoot them with an arrow. Suddenly they will be wounded, so they will cause their own tongue to turn against them. All who see them will shake their head. Then all men will fear, and they will declare the work of God, and will consider what he has done. The righteous man will be glad in Yahweh, and will take refuge in him, and all the upright in heart will boast. Finally, Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he was approved as being righteous, God approving his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For prior to being being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith Noah, being warned about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he sojourned in the land of of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she regarded him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man and him as good as dead as that, as many as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been remembering that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they aspire to a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only son to whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he also received him back. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel, and gave commands concerning his bones. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the rage of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, 
so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after welcoming the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I recount Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, as well as David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, performed righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong from weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and floggings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us the world, um, I'm sorry, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. All right. Well, that is our reading for the day. I thank you for spending this time with me, and I hope to see you. I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all you do for the glory of God, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with a prayer called the Second Coming. Let's pray. O Son of God and Son of Man, Thou wast incarnate, didst suffer, rise, ascend for my sake. Thy departure was not a token of separation, but a pledge of return. Thy word promises sacraments, show thy death, until thou come again. That day is no horror to me, for thy death has redeemed me. Thy spirit fills me, thy love animates me, thy word governs me. I have trusted thee, and thou hast not betrayed my trust. Waited for thee, and not waited in vain. Thou wilt come to raise my body from the dust, and reunite it to my soul. By a wonderful work of infinite power and love, greater than that which bounds the ocean's waters, ebbs and flows the tides, keeps the stars in their course, and gives life to all creatures. This corruptible shall put on incorruption, this mortal immortality, this natural body a spiritual body, this dishonored body a glorious body, this weak body a body of power. I triumph now in thy promises as I shall do in their performance. For the head cannot live if the members are dead. Beyond the grave is resurrection, judgment, acquittal, dominion. Every event and circumstance of my life will be dealt with. The sins of my youth, my secret sins, the sins of abusing thee, of disobeying thy word, the sins of neglecting ministers' admonitions, the sins of violating my conscience, all will be judged. And after judgment, peace and rest, life and service, employment and enjoyment for thine elect. O God, keep me in this faith, and ever looking for Christ's return. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you for the evening segment. Have a good one. God bless. Good.
Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Wednesday, February 28th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. All right, well, we are going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter 18, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Uh, we are going to be opening up, let's see, as we have been, um, with a prayer from At the Throne of Grace. It's a group of prayers done by John MacArthur that I, if I remember right, one of these days I'm going to read the forward in here, um, that his sons or his children gathered together. Um, and like all of these do, they lead in with some scripture here. So the scripture for this, so the title for this one is called Clinging to the Cross of Christ. And oh yes, we need to be clinging to the cross of Christ. And the text for it is from Psalm 118 verses 14 through 29. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live, and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God. Uh, excuse me. You are my God. I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, you are our deliverer, our shield, our refuge, the horn of our salvation. We praise you and offer our everlasting thankfulness because you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to offer his life for our sake on the cross. He is our strength and our song, and he has become our salvation. Thus the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone of our salvation and the Savior of the world. For no one in this world will ever find salvation in any other, nor can anyone come to you, Father, except through him. We add our own personal testimony to what your word declares in the consummation of all things. Those who have trusted in Christ will not be dismayed. We acknowledge, gracious Father, that our salvation is all your work. We are utterly helpless to save ourselves or contribute any merit of our own toward gaining your favor. But you took the initiative. You made the overture. You reconciled us to yourself through Christ. You made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You, the offended party, acted first on our behalf while we were still enemies. We were willfully rebellious. Our appetites were evil. Our conduct was contrary to your law. Our hearts were occupied with unworthy thoughts. Our motives were self-serving. Our attitudes were arrogant and smug. Our minds were hostile to you. We refused to submit to your authority. We were hopelessly in bondage to sin, and therefore unable to serve you as we ought. In all these ways, I'm sorry, in all those ways, we proved ourselves to be enemies of everything, everything holy. But you sent your Son to redeem us from that bondage. 
he purchased us from the slave house of sin by offering himself as a substitute. He took our place and carried our guilt to the cross. We bear for our, He bore for our sakes the just punishment of sin. Now we are slaves of righteousness, and it is our delightful duty to embrace Christ wholeheartedly as our rightful master. He is not only our Lord to rule over us, he is also our Messiah and Deliverer, our Rabbi and Teacher, our Shepherd and Caretaker, our Great High Priest and Intercessor, and the Spotless Lamb of God, who made everlasting atonement once for all. He thus put away our sins forever by the sacrifice of Himself. We embrace Him alone as our Savior, trusting His work as fully sufficient. We forego any effort to gain our own righteousness. Supplement the work of Christ, earn fresh merit in your eyes. Our, or fit ourselves for heaven through our own efforts. We thus come by faith to the one who has already done everything for us, and even in that we know that the only hope we have of abiding in Christ lies in the grace that made us alive to him in the first place. And so we cling with penitent faith, asking that you keep us always near the cross, in the name of the one who crucified the... Who, I'm sorry. In the name of the one crucified, there we pray. Amen. All right, sorry, stumbled with that one a little bit. And our evening devotion is from Glorifying God by Thomas Watson. Uh, it's the entry for February 28th. And the title of it is Glorify God by Meditating on His Word. And the text is from Proverbs 6.23. The commandment is a lamp and the law is light. Be exhorted to praise the, right, the written word. David valued the word more than gold. What would the martyrs have given for one page of the Bible? The word is the field where Christ, the pearl of price, is hid. In this sacred mine we dig, not for the wedge of gold, but for a weight of glory. The scripture is a sacred eye salve to illuminate us. It is the chart and compass by which we sail to the new Jerusalem. It is a sovereign cordial in all distresses. What are the promises but the water of life to renew fainting spirits? Is it sin that troubles? Here is a scripture cordial. Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions thou shalt purge them away. Psalm 65.3 Do outward afflictions disquiet you? Here is a scripture cordial. I will be with him in trouble. Psalm 91.15 Not only to behold, but to uphold. Thus, as in the ark, manna was laid up, so promises are laid up in the ark of scripture. The scripture will make us wise. Wisdom is above rubies. Though the pre though thy precepts, I'm sorry, through thy precepts I get understanding. Psalm 119, 104. What made Eve desire the tree of knowledge? It was a tree to make one wise. Genesis 3, 6. The scriptures teach a man to know himself. They reveal Satan's snares and schemes. God's word makes you wise unto salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 15. Oh, then, highly prize the scriptures. All right, and that was our devotion for the day. Shoot, and there is not a February 28th one in here. Well, I'll have to figure out something else. Maybe we'll just do the uh, February 29th, assuming we have one. I'm sure we have one from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. Um, we'll do it for February 29th, and we'll have to see. Um, since this year, we because it's a leap year, we have a 29th. All right, well, like I said, we're going to be continuing on in our study of John chapter 18. Um, we're still dealing with, I mean, the fact is, we've gone from that beginning portion, uh, that beginning part of it, that was about, I'm going to scroll back up here for a minute, 
um, that was about um, Jesus' betrayal and arrest. It was him going out to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, Judas bringing along those folks, Jesus confronting them, exhibiting his supreme power and his supreme love and his supreme courage and his supreme obedience. And then allowing them, and again, we got to always remember that, allowing them to arrest him. So then what we've moved into is this, this part here from verses, um, shoot, where'd it go? Verses 12 through 27, dealing with Jesus's trial and Peter's denial. And this is more about the beginning of Jesus's um, spiritual trial. We, we don't, we don't deal with yet in, in chapter 18 and verses 12 through 27, we don't deal quite yet with his civil trial because we'll see the civil trial where he goes back and forth between um but between Pilate and Herod and so we've bumbled along here through Jesus's trial act one so this is the initial part of the trial um, we're dealing with verses 12 through 14 so let me just go ahead and read them and we'll dig right in so John 18 verses 12 through 14 so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. So we've dealt with, um, we dealt with verse 12 on Monday. We dealt with verse 13 yesterday, and boy, there was a lot of information for both of those. So we're going to deal with verse 14 today, and then we'll, and kind of summarize those three. And then if we've got time, and I hope we will, We'll move on into verses 15 through 18, which is the beginning of Peter's denial. Again, we see Peter's denial broken up into two parts over these verses. Okay, so, you know, we dealt with verse 12 where we saw the Roman cohort. And again, we talked about it. It wasn't the whole cohort. It was a maniple, about 200 legionnaires, but it was also the commander of the cohort. It was important enough. And again, we talked about why it was so important that the Romans be there um, not so much from the spiritual, though that was true too, that the Gentile world was putting the Savior to death. But but it was the fact that because, you know, Jerusalem would tend to swell, we've got, you know, historical documentation that Jerusalem would tend to swell its population to over a million people. And the Passover was very, very nationalistic, as I talked about the last couple of nights, very, and I've talked about before to you, very, very nationalistic. So, and they're under what they consider oppression by the, by the Roman rule. So needless to say, they're very, they're very, um, resistant to the idea of being oppressed. So, you know, when, when better, and of course the zealots were running rampant constantly. And again, I, I'm, I'm not, but the, the zealots, their, their whole idea of getting rid of the Romans is running around in the dark and slaying Romans and, um, collaborators, Jews that collaborated with the Romans. They ran around and slayed them. They were murderers. Okay. Um, but they would run around agitating. So, you know, needless to say, so, so obviously the cohort commander saw it as important enough that not only would he send troops, but he himself would come to help manage this volatile situation. But we also saw, um, the Levite, um, temple officers, as well as their leaders as well, we, as we saw out of the Gospel of Luke, their leaders as well come to arrest him. 
And then we see them lead him first to Annas. And as I mentioned, we're going to see this his spiritual trial broken into three parts. We're going to see him go to Annas first, and then Caiaphas. And all this is going to happen at night. And then after the break of dawn the next day, we're going to see him go back before Caiaphas and the totality of the religious leadership for them to confirm what they had already determined, what they had already planned. So we've seen him go to Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And we talked about that last night, how, you know, you can sit there and talk about, oh, well, this is just the father-in-law. You know, this, this was the guy who had been high priest. But again, we talked about the fact that, you know, it, he was only not, no longer technically high priest because the Romans had removed him. And the Jews just did not feel like the Romans really had any say-so one way or another. <laughs> so it, there's a real possibility that they still considered Annas as the, the 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 pertinent high priest or as a pertinent high priest but again we talked about it that five of an at least five of annas's sons one of his grandsons and caiaphas his son-in-law were all high priest after him and we're going to see caiaphas and i and i don't i don't have when, when we come back to see caiaphas i'm going to make sure in my notes i have the dates that he served, so you'll understand. But again, I do know that Caiaphas was one of the longest serving high priests under Roman rule. Um, so obviously he was he was a he was a uh, I wasn't going to say collaborator, but I guess that fits. But but he was an appeaser. He was very much an appeaser. Um, so obviously somebody they liked. But what we did see about Annas, and we saw about the racket that they had turned the Jews coming to make their sacrifices that that that. No, no kidding. Annas and his family were, were, truly reminded me. And of course, I've always been a fan of the the uh, Godfather series. They remind me of Don Corleone and his family. I mean, it really they they they, they really would give would have given the American mob and the Sicilian mob and, and the cartels a run for their money. I mean, they, they would they were that crooked. But that was the religious leadership of the time. So, you know, they're that crooked. Think about what the culture has to be like. So, wow. But also what I what I keep keep coming to, and I've tried to make sure, and I don't know if I've conveyed it well, but you got to realize the power that is aligned against Jesus. But we also have to remember that Jesus is allowing himself to be arrested and tried and crucified. Remember, he says, he could cause 12 legion of, legions of angels. You want to put that in perspective? Basically, he's saying, I could nuke the planet, but I'm choosing not to. Meaning he's being obedient and showing his love for God. So we come into verse 14 here. And it says, Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people. Well, we already know that Caiaphas is the high priest, and we'll talk about him more um, Later this week, next week, whenever we finally get to the second part here, um, it actually pops up, um, I guess, verse 19, verses 19 through verses 19 through 24, we'll talk about Caiaphas and Jesus before Caiaphas. So we'll see that. Um, but again, so let me let's go back john 11 verse 49 through 51 this is where caiaphas makes this prophecy but one of them caiaphas who was high priest that year said to them you know nothing at all nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish perish sorry 
Now he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now again, and I'll agree, you know, and of course the scripture says that he did not say say this from himself. Please don't misunderstand this. I don't see this as the Holy Spirit coming in and using Caiaphas as a flesh puppet. Okay. I'm not trying to be gross. I'm just trying to get across. Caiaphas is speaking from his own nature. But again, we've seen God repeatedly use the, the, the crassness, the disgustingness, the evilness that is in this world to still bring glory to God. That's what's being said here. So please don't misunderstand what this is saying. Again, Caiaphas is speaking from his own nature. Again, like I said, Caiaphas is an appeaser. Okay, why else do you think he got put in as high priest? Because he was put in as high priest by the Romans. And again, we, we always have to remember, that's not really how that was done. The, the high priest came from the family of Levi and came from a specific family of Levi. They descended from the family of Aaron. They were the Aaronic priesthood. So you didn't just randomly appoint you were born into this and it was a lifetime thing. We talked about that, that, that it wasn't up to the Romans to just remove them. It was a lifetime thing. Now, don't get me wrong. That tells you how, how, um, how twisted and corrupted. And it was that it had come to the point that God had allowed it to where Gentiles were, were, um, unplugging and plugging in high priests here by their choice. So, Caiaphas was high priest that year. Now, again, like I said, Caiaphas was an appeaser. Okay. Caiaphas was as crooked as Annas was. And, and we'll get into that more, but he was as crooked as Annas was. So he's not making this statement trying to be all because truly Caiaphas does not care about the common people. He wouldn't have been high priest if he did. Uh, truly. I mean, when you look within what that hierarchy is, of all the Sanhedrin, and again, we've talked about this before, the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership, both Sadducees, Pharisees, uh, priests, scribes, you name it, they, more than anybody else, supposedly being the authorities, the authority on scriptures, the authority, excuse me, the authorities on scripture that they're supposed, supposed to be, to not recognize that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, or to recognize it and willfully ignore it because it doesn't fit their agenda. In either case, they're, they're so horrendously corrupted. So here's Caiaphas, one of those who should know, proposing that it would be better. Basically, he's proposing murder. He's, he's not pro proposing that it would be better for us to hope that he dies. He's proposing murder. You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Again, he's saying we should kill him because if we kill him and these people don't proclaim him king, then we're safe because that's his motivation. That is Caiaphas's motivation. Don't ever misunderstand that. His motivation is he doesn't want the boat rocked. He doesn't want to take a chance on losing his position. I mean, as much as Rome, as the Romans had, had disengaged, had, had unplugged his father-in-law as the high priest and plugged others in and eventually plugged Caiaphas in as it, he doesn't want to be unplugged. He doesn't want to lose that position. Again, Jesus is very, very clear throughout the gospels about the fact 
that that these that are the religious elite they they care more about the best places best seats in the synagogue the best places at the feasts um the best robes the, the being given honor by the people as they walk up and down the streets um to stand around looking imposing you know it, it was all about that it was all about appearance it was all about power about their own power base it had nothing to do with being, and again, they're supposed to be the shepherds, but I mean, Jesus calls them the hired hands. When he's talking back in John 10, I believe it is, talking about the uh, the being the good shepherd, they're the hired hands that he talks about that run away because they don't care about the sheep. So Caiaphas is not caring really about the nation. Now, at the same time, like I said, at the same time, God uses even the evil, I, I mean, uh, what what better story than Joseph to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. He got he got Joseph down there to, to Egypt so that Egypt and, and, you know, Jacob's own family, Joseph's own, you know, his, his siblings and his father and all that and all the children wouldn't starve to death in the famine because Joseph was there and had planned for it, even though he ended up there in slavery again. So. This is God using the the evil that was Caiaphas, the corruption that was Caiaphas coming out of a corrupt system, truly proclaiming for himself. Because please, 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 this is not Caiaphas having a spiritual moment. Okay, and I'm, I, I know it sounds goofy what I'm trying to do here, but but we've got to understand this. And this is who he's speaking of. This is who John is relating to. He wants us to understand. God wants us to understand through the proclamation of John the Apostle here during Jesus's trial. And again, what we also have to realize is John, knowing Caiaphas is there, really backs up the idea that we're going to see that in coming up in verse 15 and 16, that John the Apostle was there. He was there at Annas's house and he ends up being there at Caiaphas's house because he's known by them. And we'll talk about that um, tomorrow evening because it looks like it's going to be tomorrow evening, Friday evening about that. But again, Caiaphas is crooked, but God uses him in his own nature to at the same time proclaim, because what is he pro proclaiming? You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. I'm going to go on in that verse 49. This is John 11, 49 through 51. Now, he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. So even in that, like I said, while he's being evil and wants to murder Jesus to protect himself, what he's all prophesying is that Jesus is going to die for the nation of the believers, not the nation of Israel. I'm sure that's what, you know, that's what Caiaphas was thinking of. But Jesus is going to die for those who would believe. He is truly going to die. And he's the only one who could have that one person. Again, true prophecy, because no human, no true human, no, no one that was not fully God and fully man could die for the salvation of anybody other than themselves. Um, and even in that case, couldn't do it. I mean, the fact is, even were it before Jesus, were I to die 
I wouldn't even be able to save myself. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus could take upon himself the sins of all of we who believe and accept the wrath from God against that sin to pay the price for our sin. So that's what Caiaphas was proclaiming. That's what John is referring to here, that it was better for one man to die on behalf of the people that, that Caiaphas had said that. That's what John is referring to because this is what's happening here. So he's saying that John is very aware that that's where that was going. Again, John is writing this from decades later, but it became very, very clear. It seems to have become very clear to John that Caiaphas had proclaimed that. And here is Jesus heading towards that sacrifice for the people. So we ask the so what about these first three verses here, 12, 13, and 14. It's kind of the so what. And like I keep saying, and like what has really kind of stood out to me for this, is that you see such power stacked up against Jesus, such worldly power, let's be clear, such worldly, such temporal power stacked up against Jesus. And that can be very, very daunting to see that as we're reading that, that, that worldly power stacked up against him. But at the same time, we can see that worldly power stacked up against, against us in the world we walk in that has become more and more hostile to the practicing Christian. But what I remind myself is that through these, this text we're in, Jesus permitted this to occur. Truly, he even forced this to occur. Remember, I've talked about that. He forced it to occur when and how it did to be obedient to his father. He came into Jerusalem during the Passover on purpose and made the triumphal entry, intentionally forcing the religious leadership to deal with the fact that they were going to have to arrest him and sacrifice him during the Passover in front of all. But he also went out intentionally to the Garden of Gethsemane at night, which was like a giant invitation for the Roman cohort and the temple officers to come arrest him instead of going to hide. Think of his timing. He forced his sacrifice exactly on the day prior to the Sabbath, and he rose from the dead on the day after their Sabbath. That's not coincidence. He forced this to happen when it did. He was in complete control of this. And so that reminds me, even with all that temporal, I'm, so this is all happening exactly as the Father and Son intended. In the face of all that, we must, with grace and peace and confidence, face the persecution and potential consequences that, that we will have if we walk a truly worthy walk. Ephesians 4.1 Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now Jesus was walking worthy of the calling which, which he had been, with which he had been called. Thus he forced this to happen when it happened, to be obedient to the Father, as I said, to be obedient to the Father's will. And to carry out the plan that he and the Father had set before the foundation of the world. In the face of all that temporal power, he held the course. And so I see that as the example, because the same power that was behind him is behind you and I. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If we truly believe we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, 
we have everything spiritually we need to spiritually persevere through the persecution and the hardship and the potential consequences of walking a truly worthy walk, that true Christian walk. So we should stand as Jesus did and be obedient to the Father. All right. That's going to do it for today. So we finally finished this first section. <laughs> we'll get into the next section. Um, this is going to be the first section about Peter's denial. And we'll get into that tomorrow night, God willing. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. We're going to close out with the fourth day evening prayer. It's called God All Sufficient. Let's pray. King of glory, divine majesty, every perfection adorns thy nature and sustains thy throne. The heavens and earth are thine. The world is thine in its fullness. Thy power created the universe from nothing. Thy wisdom has managed all its multiple concerns, presiding over nations, families, individuals. Thy goodness is boundless. All creatures wait on thee, are supplied by thee, are satisfied in thee. How precious are the thoughts of thy mercy and grace. How excellent thy loving kindness that draws men to thee. Teach us to place our happiness in thee, the blessed God, never seeking life among the dead things of earth or asking for that which satisfies the deluded. But may we prize the light of thy smile, implore the joy of thy salvation, find our heaven in thee. Thou hast attended to our happiness more than we can do. Though we are fallen creatures, thou hast not neglected us. In love and pity thou hast provided us a Savior. Apply his redemption to our hearts by justifying our persons and sanctifying our natures. We confess our transgressions, have mercy on us. We are weary, give us rest. Ignorant, make us wise unto salvation. Helpless, let thy strength be made perfect in our weakness. Poor and needy, bless us with Christ's unsearchable riches. Perplexed and tempted, let us travel on, unchecked and undismayed, knowing that thou hast said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. Blessed be thy name. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful evening, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. Have a good night. God bless.